2: Welcome to the New Books Network and the New Books and Art channel. My name is Kirsten Ellsworth, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Amy Von Lintel, who has just published in 2020 Georgia O'Keeffe's Wartime Texas Letters with Texas A&M Press. Amy, we're very excited to have you, and... um, I'd like to start out with the question, what motivated you to compile these letters of George O'Keefe?
1: Yeah, thank you, Kristen, for having me um, on the podcast again. So the motivation connects to the previous podcast, actually, that I did on the George O'Keeffe Watercolors book, which came out in 2016. And I had been working on O'Keefe's Texas years for a number of years since I moved to the Panhandle myself, um, I got a job teaching at a local university and discovered this is West Texas A&M and discovered that O'Keefe had taught there at its earlier iteration. It was called West Texas Normal. Um, West Texas State Normal College, kind of a mouthful, um, when she was there in the 1910s. So she was teaching in the very department where I got a job. So I started digging around and, you know, to see what was published or what we could know about her years. It was a brief time at the institution. But that's kind of what motivated me, like being in the same department as O'Keeffe. And then um, I produced the uh, watercolors book with Radius Press and George O'Keeffe Museum um, that featured her watercolors from her Texas years. But in order to do the research for that, I started reading all of her letters that she wrote from Texas. And she wrote almost every day So there were a significant number of these letters. They were easily accessible because they were opened up to the public in um, 2006, which was 20 years after she donated them to the Beinecke Library in Yale, at at Yale University. And um, they had started to be published and they'd started to be digitized. So I could really get my hands on those letters. And while I was doing that work for the first book, I knew that these letters themselves needed to be published. And some of them had appeared in a book that was called My Faraway One, which was about the correspondence between O'Keefe and Stieglitz. And there's a good long section about her Texas years because she starts to write to Stieglitz at that time. But um, some of them were not yet published. So I wanted the book to be her voice without Stieglitz and her voice about, her experience in West Texas. Um, And so I wanted to include some of those letters that hadn't already been published. Does that help answer the question? (laughs) I think think so. so. And And I think
2: think that listeners and and readers readers will be be interested in 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 the fact that you ended up in a job where you're kind of walking the steps of O'Keefe when she was in Texas, which is really kind of incredible. And I'm wondering as a follow-up question, if you might discuss a little bit about how Georgia O'Keeffe even got to Texas in 1916. I think we under we know of her in New Mexico, right? But how did she get to Texas
1: during the time of the letters? Um, that's a good question. She was, at the time, she was an educator more than a studio artist selling her work. Um, so she needed money. And her, she got secured the position in January of 1916, writing back and forth to the president of the university, and decided, yes, I'm going to go. I'm going to take this job. Um, it was, I think, it was a prestigious position for a young professional art educator because she was she had the title of head of the department. Now the department had one person; it was her. But still, she wasn't just a school teacher. At the time, she was a professor, actually, you know, like an instructor at a college. It was a teaching college, that's what a normal school was. Um, and so this was a move up within her art educating career. And she had actually lived in Texas, in West Texas, um, in Amarillo, which is about 20 miles north of Canyon, where the college is between the years of 1912 and 14. And she had been a school teacher at that time. Um, So it wasn't a brand new call to Texas. It was kind of like a call back in a way. And so the short answer is that she came for a job. And the long answer might include that she came to a place she was already interested in being in and liked. We don't have a lot of letters from Amarillo years. That's why they're not included In the book, and the book kind of explains this, but she didn't start writing to Stieglitz or Anita Pollitzer or any of her other correspondents that we know of when she was in Texas or in Amarillo. So that is kind of a blank space or a gap in the knowledge of O'Keeffe's life. Um, Maybe something will be discovered, but so far, nothing really. She didn't really make a lot of art and she wasn't writing a lot of letters. But what we do know is the letters in Canyon, she references having been there before and being interested in spending more time there and finding the place beautiful and finding the job interesting. She liked teaching. So she came there for the job, really, if that, yeah, that's what I, that's how I'd answer that question.
2: Yes. Um, and then, so she develops this letter writing habit and you mentioned, you know, she liked the place. Maybe we can talk a little bit about what we learned from the letters. I have to tell listeners, I couldn't stop reading the letters. It, I felt like I was having this kind of private secretive conversation with Georgia O'Keefe because my takeaway is in the letters, she's quite opinionated about people, places, other faculty members. Um, if you had to describe her general view of the people that she lived with the local crowd how what would you say her general kind of thoughts about the people in the place
1: well and that's i think where it gets interesting because the myth around here was always how much she hated it not the land you know that inspired her but the people. She was crabby about their conservative politics or she was crabby about the wartime attitude, the kind of warmongering attitude. But when I dug into the letters, I found that it was much more complicated. Um, another th- kind of misunderstanding that is written back onto her Texas years is that she's a hermit, like not a social person. And I think when she was younger, when she was living in Texas, she was very social. She had lots of friends um, among her colleagues, among other young women. She befriended a lot of the males at the college who she wasn't actually the direct educator of, but she would hang out with like, you know, and go to dances with the young students, including the young men. She would ride in cars with and date, you know, both married men who were about her age, and then also younger men that were students at the college. She was just having a good time as a young person, and she was by no means a hermit. She would talk about how she liked to be alone. It's not like that part of her wasn't there. It was. But she was very social, and she really liked certain people. She talked about how, for example, she liked people who had Red blood, like red blood cells rather than white blood cells. For her, the red blood meant like passionate and getting out there in the landscape and not afraid to go sit on the porch and watch a storm or, you know, those kind of things. Where the white blooded people she felt like were the people who were, you know, professed to be Christian churchgoers, but then were kind of hypocritical with some of their views or judgmental about the fact that she didn't go to church or whatever. So there were lots of townspeople that she was quite annoyed with a lot of the times, and she didn't hold back her opinions. But I think that sometimes what the received knowledge of her was is not what the complicated view that these letters actually give us can portray, that she was a much more complicated individual than some of those overlying myths of being grumpy, hermit, isolated and hating Texas. Um, So a little bit of rewriting history through her own words there where she gets to speak rather than other people speak for her. What a great motivation for compiling these letters because you
2: use the word complex. That is absolutely what I experienced, you know, from reading the letters. um, And uh, I was a little surprised because I think I had the myth in mind as well. And I want to ask you um, regarding her time spent with other men in the community. She's writing these letters to Stieglitz. And I wondered, you know, is she trying to stimulate a little jealousy? She would talk about, I remember the blonde boy, a good looking kid, um, and going to dances and whether she should go with this young man. And I was thinking about the audience of the letters. Yeah, as Stieglitz is reading this about a woman you know, I think he's interested in. Do you have any, anything to say about that?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent observation. And sometimes you forget because like you said, you're reading along and you feel like you're having this intimate conversation with O'Keefe, like she's talking to you, but then you remember who she's actually talking to. And she's actually talking to a man who was her dealer and supporter Um, and then quickly becoming kind of a, like, correspondent lover. She was – and she did see him in the spring of 1917 when she – went back and saw her show her first solo show hanging in his gallery and they spent time together and so that's when their intimacy would have been in person but they were professing these kinds of romantic feelings for each other through those letters and that's really what that other book by Sarah Greenow my faraway one is all about like this kind of love affair through these letters um, that kind of begins in Texas but she definitely wasn't exclusive and he wasn't either he was married we must remember at this time right and so but yeah she was totally flirting with him in her writing because she is saying how much she likes to be kissed or how she lays on her bed nude or how she um she'll say things like you should have been in the back seat while I was kissing this man in the front seat like toying with him absolutely and I don't know if I don't I think she was just kind of a bold flirt rather than a kind of manipulative shrew. But there's a little bit of that question of like, what really was she trying to do to Stieglitz? I think she was definitely trying to like arouse his interest romantically through these letters, even if it was playing with him, toying with him by describing her relationships with other men.
2: It's really something that doesn't fit my image of. Georgia O'Keefe, you know, being exactly as you described. Um, and I wonder too, on on from his point of view, I I believe it's in October or um, I can't remember I'm. I know that at some point, I believe it was October, he wrote her a forty-two page letter. She refers to receiving a forty-two page letter from Stieglitz?
1: Um, yes. I don't remember exactly the date either, but you're right. These letters were lengthy. But the way that I understand it is that it's almost like a journal for each of them. They talk about mundane things. They talk about, you know, going to a shopping or the post office. Um, So it's like they put down everything that happened to them that day and all that they thought about and inspiring things and mundane things. And so, yeah, the 42-page letter was probably written over a few days, but it it would describe all kinds of things that he was thinking. thinking about, they were like confidants, like deep confidants at this time. Um, And so, yeah, he would write to, and she, sometimes she didn't even know what to make of such a letter, but I think she also wrote back of how much she enjoyed getting them in the mail and going to the post office and opening them and sneaking around to read them because some of the people that were in the, in the town would say, who is this person that you're getting these letters from? And, you know, she didn't want, I remember there's this one point where she says she doesn't want her landlord picking up her letters. Uh, Anything she calls her the little fat lady or something like this, you know, she's always got this kind of biting judgment that's it, it's funny when you read it. And so she didn't want her sniffing around her letters kind of attitude. She wanted privacy. It's hard to have privacy when you're renting a room in someone else's house. It's hard to have privacy when you're a woman that has to keep up the social mores in public and she would break those mores pretty like egregiously in ways where, you know, the young women at the college were mandated not to ride in cars with men, but that's the students. And she was a faculty member, so she kind of didn't care and she would do what she wanted or she'd take her shoes off and sit on the porch of the um, boarding house where she took her meals. I mean, a woman didn't just take their shoes off, you know, she would just really push on these, um, social, um, behaviors and, you know, kind of, she wanted to scandalize a little bit. Um, but, the yeah, the 42 page letter, I think is something that all of them were quite lengthy. So what you're learning from this is, is like, you know, you can learn about their life, like their daily life. And these are really interesting people who lived really interesting lives. So, I mean, I've even heard somebody say that it's like the most, complete correspondence of a married couple in history or something like this, you know, the uh, okeefe Stieglitz correspondence. But you can also say maybe from O'Keefe's perspective, you know, you learn almost everything she thought and did in these two years. It's an incredible insight into just life at the time and in the place. And with that said,
2: the war and you, in your introduction, you help readers understand the context of the war and you know O'Keeffe is out west during the war. Um, what? It's complicated again. But from the letters, what do you think? Um, is is it possible to even describe O'Keeffe's take on the war, and her? You know her. Is there a, a unified understanding she had of of what's happening?
1: Um, That's something that I really tried to tackle. When I first started this project, it wasn't about the war at all. But then by the time I was sort of done with it, it was the centennial of, like, America entering the war, right? So I was working on it in this moment when the war was being reviewed as an important historical moment. I started to, like, look for what she was saying in the letters about living in that wartime or the buildup to war before America entered in April 1917, you know, or like treating her as a kind of wartime writer in a new way. And that evolved during the process of me producing this book. And she mentioned it a lot more times than I thought. And I think that was also something that I found like in her literature, which is so rich, like there's so many wonderful books and scholarly articles and, you know, monographs and biographies about this woman because she is so interesting. But treating her in during the wartime in World War One, nobody had done that. Like nobody saw her as a wartime artist because she wasn't making pictures about the war. But when you look at what she was saying and thinking, her pictures sort of become about the war in this new way. So I sort of wanted to newly think about her art and newly think about her perspective because a lot of times she was just written off as a pacifist because she would be, like be aligned with, a, with, with, um, Stieglitz, who is a known pacifist, um, but thinking about how she had different opinions as a young woman. You know, a professional woman with a job on the American home front in the in middle America, it must be a different take than Stieglitz, who was a 52 year old man in New York City. You know, like those politics can't be the same. And so that's really what I spent some time thinking about. Um, and I what I teased out is that again, this idea of like the complexities of it come to light. Like on some days, she wants to go fight and she can't because she's a woman. And on some days, she wants everyone to just shut up about it. She's sick of it. And on other. days, She's sad because some of her friends from the college were called up to war and she knows she might never see them again. Um, you know, and then on other days, she's actually corresponding with Stieglitz about aspects of of the war. And so I think that, you know, we can learn about how hard it was, just like we're living through this pandemic. I mean, nobody really knows what to say about it. It's very complicated. And I think that's how it was for her. Like day to day, it was rough and strange and sad and normal too. She had to keep tying her shoes and going to work. And, you know, like she had to live a normal life. But at the same time, she knew that this global conflict was occurring and there were these minutes that it would come into her consciousness. And I really wanted that to come out in the book. One of the ways I did it was with italics. So like if you look through the text, the um, the wartime mentions are in italics. So you could like skim the pages and look for war stuff. I don't know if that really worked, but I thought that was one way to just kind of highlight how it would come and go in her consciousness.
0: This episode is brought to you by Saks.com.
2: thought that was effective. And coming into the project, and I I think other readers would be like this, I didn't even think of her as a wartime artist. You're absolutely nailing down a point. Um, I just never even wondered what her thoughts were, because I think of her art and the abstract quality of the art. Um, And thinking about the art she was making at the time, and in your introduction, you find some resonances, even within that abstraction, with the war. Um, I'm wondering, there's a quote I wanted to ask you about regarding the art. This is a letter to Stieglitz, April 13th, 1917. And O'Keefe says, I want to pick holes in everything. Folks, folks call art, everything folks call art. I'm not trying to do art. I'm digging stars. What do you make
1: of that? <laughs> this is why I love her as a writer. She says so many times like words and me don't go together, or like, I'm not good with words. Well, that's a lie to me, you know, because it she wrote she wrote privately, she didn't publish it, but it's still she had a way with words. And this idea of digging stars, I mean, what does that even mean? I love this. And then she does that beautiful piece where it's the landscape of the panhandle. It's a rectangular, small watercolor where the land itself is this kind of, like, darkened color. The sky is this bluish-green color. And the stars are holes in her color. Like, they're the paper coming through. And they're kind of, like, square and sort of strange-shaped. Not totally like a grid, but like a, like an organic grid. And so this idea of, like, her kind of digging at infinity or digging at the cosmos... And, you know, that idea of, like, what is reality during war? Or, you know, it really gets at that struggle, struggle to make art, struggle. She had so many ideas in her head, and she really didn't know how to form them. And she struggled to form these ideas. And that idea of, like, digging a star, like, going down to go up. I mean, there's such complications in that phraseology, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to, like, throw her out there almost as a poet. You know, and I'm not like a literary scholar, so I'm not the expert at words I'm I'm more of an expert at images and art. But the beauty of the correspondence between her words and her images, I just felt like other people could make more of this, too, than I did. And that's why I wanted them accessible.
2: And that is a real inspiration for artistic minded people. Of all types or historically minded people to look at the book, I was blown away by the I'm digging stars and related. um, She keeps talking in the letters about this red painting she's working on and she gets very, you know, agitated and she has something's going on with the red.
1: Do you want to talk about that? Yes, I think I actually talked about that on the previous podcast, too, because it's something that stood out a lot in her, like, when I was looking at the letters in light of her watercolors and her few oil paintings. There's this really good painting where she's learning to do oils, um, so it's lumpy. It's not, like, the best oil painting that she did, you know, after Stieglitz, like, after 1918 when she returned to New York and really focused on getting the skill set for oil. But it's a very, like, it's a beautiful painting because of its, like, moment in time, and its reds, and its its representation of the canyon. It's in the Palo Duro – no, excuse me. It's in the um, Panhandle Plains Museum on the campus where I work, so at West Texas A&M now. And the museum was not founded when she was there, but it has this piece – um, and it shows the kind of craggy walls that are this rich, bloody red. And obviously, the canyon walls that she fell in love with out here in, in the canyon lands of Texas are very similar to the ones she continued to live among in Ghost Ranch and Abiquiu in New Mexico. And obviously, they're not red, like red, red, blood red. They're more of like, um, you know, like a kind of earthy orange color. But she thought that red was symbolic and she kept thinking through red. Like she talked about her body as red, like the big landscape. She talked about red blood cells of people she liked, redness as passion, redness as like living a a full life rather than like being... Um, hypocritical or living a confined life based on, you know, following all the social rules. I think there's so much to red that she talks about. She finds red in the landscape and then makes it mean in her mind. And it's this really powerful color for these years. Um, She even deviates from red to do pink too. And like, you know, her body is kind of this pinkish red that's made with Brazil wood, pigments in her watercolors versus that rich oil, lumpy oil, craggy red that she uses for the landscape. So you could do like a really cool study of like her reds in the Texas years where you just looked at like what she wrote about red and what she, how she represented red in her art. But it is this really powerful color for her at that time. And she even does, sorry, I'm like going on, but she even does these amazing, abstract portraits of men that she loved or dated. One of them is Paul Strand. And the other one is um, this man named Watkins. And the reds in there are like bloody, throbbing, passionate, you know, sexy reds. So it's all of it. It's the war and it's love and it's life and it's landscape. Yeah, red is so potent for her.
2: I think you're describing your next book project, perhaps. Just to isolate the red. (laughs) I think that uh, the whole, anyone interested in O'Keeffe's color, your first book on the watercolors, this collection of letters, they are must reads. And since you mentioned Paul Strand, maybe you could tell us a little bit about this interesting dynamic among uh, Strand, O'Keeffe, and
1: Stieglitz. Yeah, one of the most bizarre love triangles in history, maybe, I don't know. So um, one of the things that you can read in the letters and also read in Sarah Greenow's book in a different way because she does the back and forth between Siegelitz and O'Keefe and I'm only doing the O'Keefe take on it. But the strange thing is after O'Keefe, she gets sick and talk about my next book. It's so funny. So um, she gets sick in November of 1917 And stays ill through that spring of 1918, quits the job at WT, and relocates to San Antonio to kind of recuperate her health. It's an upper respiratory, flu-like, undiagnosed illness. Now, people always say it's Spanish flu, right? Because the Spanish flu started in 1918. But usually, the Spanish flu is dated to the summer Right. So she would have had it like eight months earlier than the first case. But as we know with the pandemic going on right now, we don't really know when it started. So maybe my next book would be like, did O'Keefe have the Spanish flu? I don't know. But this all leads up to the fact that she's in San Antonio and Stieglitz is super worried about her because of her health. And he writes these letters that basically say, Um, there's no good doctors down there, come back to New York. But her doctors are actually saying you're better off in San Antonio because of the climate for upper respiratory. Fine. Okay. So she stays there. Stieglitz tells Strand, who O'Keefe also had feelings for, and Stieglitz knew this, to go down and get her. And he doesn't go himself. He never leaves New York. The man does not come to the West with her ever, even during their marriage. He sends Strand down To retrieve her, Strand moves in with her and her friend Leah, who are like living in this kind of rural lifestyle, pretending to be farmers or something, you know, outside of San Antonio. And he hangs out with them for a while. And then she just up and gets on a train and returns to Stieglitz. So Strand never retrieves her if that's what Stieglitz wanted. And there's a few kind of sexual tension letters between Strand and O'Keefe that, of course, she's writing back to Stieglitz titillating him yet again. But it's very weird. And I think in the end, O'Keefe is kind of fed up with Strand's, like, I don't know, like inability to just up and go to war, inability to figure out his stuff, and is more drawn to Stieglitz in the end. And that's when she goes back and, you know, stays in New York. So this strange tension is going on in these letters that you can see with two different lovers of O'Keefe, one of which is sends the other one to retrieve her and bring her back to New York. Is that strange? That's so strange. Yes,
2: it is strange. I would, I would have to agree. Um, And it's kind of unresolved, it's unresolved in an, I guess, a very human way. Um, And you mentioned Leah. I found Leah in the letters to be such an intriguing character. Can you tell us anything else about Leah and how she and O'Keefe
1: came to be friends? Yes, Leah is one of the really strong kind of characters, if you want to call them characters, in the book because she is a friend that is about the same age as O'Keefe. I assume a young, kind of almost thirty-year-old professional woman. She drives a car around, um, and she is like a, a health demonstrator. So she goes around almost like a nutritionist, right? And so she drives through the panhandle and demonstrates about you know health consciousness or you know um, and her. Her father, no brother-in-law is a doctor. So her sister is married to this doctor that's also becomes O'Keefe's doctor and friend. Um, and Leah, but Leah is from um, the San Antonio area. And her dad is a newspaper man in the San Antonio area. And then when they both get sick because they both come down with this like flu-like sickness, that's when they she Leah convinces O'Keefe to come back and live with her in the San Antonio area on this farm in Waring, Texas. And they're so close. I mean, one could even read a kind of sexual tension between Leah and O'Keefe, but it's not. It's a little bit like the Maria Chabot letters where there's this sexual tension, but it's never really obvious that that is there. It's just this deep, deep friendship, especially between Leah and O'Keefe because they're the same age. They lay in a bed together like holding hands, you know, but Strand is there too. so And they don't really talk about doing anything sexual. So it's this very, very interesting Interesting. But what I find so interesting is how close, close, close she was to Leah. And then Leah disappears, fully disappears. I don't know if they had a falling out. I don't know if she just wanted to get out of town and go back to be a and turn the corner in her life and never looked back. But you know, she does maintain some contact with people she met in Canyon, like Ted Reed, who is the man she almost married. But she never, as far as I know, and I, I haven't read every single letter that she wrote, maybe she mentions Leah later, but I haven't found it yet. And so one of the things that um, Linda Grasso writes about in her book on O'Keefe and feminism is how O'Keefe often wants to downplay her women-to-women relationships, um, almost so that she seems like she does it all on her own. And I think that's a really interesting point because Leah really kind of rescues her and becomes her family in a way. And then later, you know, when she returns to um, uh, New York and draws on Stieglitz's help and, and, um, connections. She cuts that out almost and doesn't mention it in her biography later, almost forgotten in her life. But it was a very important moment that those letters do show in a friendship that's very real. So third book, who knows how many books, okay, I'm going to do the pandemic one. Maybe I'll also track Leah because she's an interesting person, but I don't know what there is to track. I haven't looked into that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's,
2: it's, it's, uh, it it is an abrupt, departure. departure. And, then and then when O'Keefe, O'Keefe goes to goes New, York, to New York, I almost I felt no, like, oh, no, this, this is over no phone And, and that, brings that brings me to, a, to another, another, another question. question. What is the missing, maybe you've already answered it with regard to Leah, what's the missing letter that you want to find? You know, what, hmm. If you if there was, there's something that's not yet connected in the letters or something missing, In addition to finding out more about what happened with Leah, is there anything like your dream letter to find in an
1: archive? Oh, my gosh. What a good question. I think, I mean, okay, so I don't know what that dream letter is, but I did find, well, a woman in town who was the granddaughter of Ted Reed, this cowboy who Okifo most married, walked into my office, with handwritten letters from O'Keefe to read that were sent in the forties. And then later, even when she was older, that was a dream moment because I, I found later things that connected back to the Texas years that have been written out of most biographies. I mean, because they lived in the panhandle. This is one of the things that happens with, you know, regional areas out of sight, out of mind. Like if it's not on the radar of scholars on the coast, it's missing from the narrative because who's going to come out here and dig in the panhandle except someone living there, you know, or something like this. So that was a really cool find. I would love to find more after letters that connect to these people that she might have stayed in touch with from the Canyon years. And now that I know them all, now they're all indexed. Maybe that'll come out. That's one thing I spent a heck of a lot of time on in this book, and no one I think will care about this but me, Um, but maybe some O'Keefe lovers will too because people get very obsessed with, you know, how many times did she mention the color green in these letters? It's in the index, right? So you can really play that game of like, what did she think about shotguns? What did she think about um, you know, pick any topic. If she mentioned it in those letters, I tried to get it into that index so that people could really go to that letter and dip into the book too, to find out every time Leah was mentioned or every time she talked about green. So I would love to find those letters about some people she might've kept in touch with, like the Ted Reed case later in her life. That would be magical. What an incredible story to have
2: a descendant just show up with letters. Um, Isn't that just kind of mind blowing from my point of view. And then to, yes, to definitely maybe someone listening to this podcast has a connection and knows where they are some letters so that you could build out the people in her life and how they, you know, corresponded or affected her as she moved on. Um, That would be wonderful. Maybe one, Additional topic that we haven't gotten into is how O'Keefe um, saw herself as a teacher and what she thought of her students. Uh, when I was reading the letters, she had some interesting comments like, well, education is like a machine, school is like a machine. But at other times, she was so excited. She had, I think it was a still life setup, and she was so excited that the students were going to be painting the still life, and it went really well. Do you have a take on her, you know, her identity as a teacher at this time?
1: That is something that I think I've spent the most time thinking about, and that has become a new thread in my research. So the fact that women who were kind of under-recognized or underselling compared to some of their male colleagues, one of the ways that they supported themselves and found inspiration and made connections and had a professional career was through teaching. So I'm working on a number of other artists in this vein for other projects. Um, But O'Keeffe's teaching, it was like up to 1918, she was a pretty serious educator. She like this is what she saw herself doing. She was proud of her voice as an educator and public speaker. Um, She, you know, even was doing conferencing. I love this idea that right when she got sick, like around... Thanksgiving of 1917, she had been to, uh, Waco, Texas, where she also saw her brother who was in training camp as a soldier. Um, and so that wartime moment comes in, but she also was going down there to speak on behalf of like the tech, Texas Teachers Association, Um, and even her letters are written on Texas Teachers Association letterhead. I might be getting the organization name a little bit wrong, but you get the point, right? So she's speaking on behalf of her institution in an association of teachers. Um, and okay, later in her life, she was never really this person that was like a public speaker, educator. She kind of stopped having to be a teacher after Stieglitz came into her life. And she started actually selling her work and became one of the most successful women studio artists. I mean, her art has sold for the highest amount worldwide of any woman artist of all time. Right. So like she was a successful financially successful studio artist. But um, I think that she also loved the teaching aspect. She loved the engagement with students. She would just inspire people on the street to kind of follow her. She was sort of like a prophet. And that's one of the things I would like to look more into is how like her teaching carried over into the way that she would her relationship, say, with like Maria Chabot or some of the other people that she engaged with in Abiquiu. I know that she funded college funds for some of the townspeople. And so she was always sort of edu- like being a kind of prophet educator, but not in a formal manner. And what you can look at in the letters in Texas is her formal manner of education, because she would talk about loving faculty meetings. I don't know who in the world loves faculty meetings, but she did. Um, and, you know, her voice as a kind of radical thinker for the future of education comes through. Um, So, yeah, teaching and women artists is a thread in the book that is also a thread that I think needs more research in the field of like art history and gender studies where they overlap. I think that's an excellent point that I'm glad you asked. So I got to make it.
2: (laughs) Well, I'm just hoping and I just know that anyone who's listening to the podcast realizes that in this volume, which looks deceptively slim, there are many themes um, that come out from this. Small, you know, short period of time in O'Keeffe's life. And I really appreciate the time you've given us today to help us sort of get the sense of what is in the letters and what people can take from the letters. And um, I just want to thank you for your time. And I hope we can have you back on the podcast when you get the next book done.
1: And again, thank you very much. Um, The pleasure is all mine. Thank you for having me again. And I look forward to doing this whenever. You know, whenever some new studies come out, this is just a wonderful thing that you do, especially during this time where people need the voice to calm them. So, thank you so much. Thank you, Amy.